Well, you can turn over in your Bibles to Romans chapter 14. I almost didn't start this next chapter because of Christmas coming up and stuff and then being gone a week, but I thought, well, if I keep on putting stuff off, we'll never get through the book of Romans, so here it is. We're going to start chapter 14. I don't know how far we'll get before we start our Christmas messages. I'll probably preach one more message when I come back uh, from Honduras. And Just a word on that. Uh, Sam and I would appreciate your prayers. Um, we're going down there, uh, kind of unknown to both of us. Neither of us have ever been to South America before, so it should be an interesting trip. And uh, TMAI uh, Seminary has, um, the Master Seminary has a branch seminary down there, and they actually have about 10 or 12 uh, pastors who are graduating. And so we were invited to go down to this graduation and meet these pastors with the hopes of maybe uh, finding a local church that we can uh, partner with uh, on this side of the globe and uh, be able to support a work in South America. So that's our goal and pray that everything goes well and uh, that we are safe. Not a very nice place down there. I made the mistake of going on the internet and searching some stuff out. I shouldn't have done it. But anyway, um, I'm sure we'll be in good hands. <laughs> uh, this morning, I want to start this um, chapter 14 in the book of Romans. And uh, the message is entitled Unity in Diversity. And uh, as we've come to understand the Apostle Paul, as we've taught through the book of Romans now for several years, um, we understand the basic concept that if someone likes something, they enjoy something, usually they'll spend a lot of time talking about it. Okay, if I run into somebody and I hear that they're in the military or uh, they're a jet fighter pilot or something like that, uh, my ears just perk up, and that's what we talk about for the next 20 minutes. You know, tell me about your experiences. You know, but why? Because that, that's an interest to me. Um, and, and usually that's the way it is with all of us. Now, some people are only interested in themselves, so when they talk, they only talk about themselves. That's not a good quality. But there's nothing wrong with having interests that we enjoy and uh, discussing with each other. And Paul here apparently is very interested in the way Christians treat other Christians. Because that's what he's going to talk about for the next chapter and a half. He writes at length on this subject, how the body of Christ should treat one another. And so in Romans 14, we begin this new section in Romans 1, 14, 1, and it runs all the way to verse 13 of chapter 15. He just won't give up this subject. It's just really pressing on his heart. It's one of the longest parts, the single longest part, that Paul really applies of application to, to people. And um, when you stop and, and think about it, he gives so much space to this subject. Why do Christians, how do Christians treat each other? How should we treat each other? Um, why Christians need to accept those with whom they disagree on less than maybe essential matters, whether it be doctrinal or whatever. We're not talking about essential doctrines, but we're talking about non-essential doctrines. Um, it seems almost insignificant to us. Why is he spending so much time here? But he thought and he knew that it was very important for the church to understand this, especially the church in Rome. Now, when you stop and you think about the church in Rome... He, he just spent time, we've gone through several chapters here, he spent time talking about the Christian mind. You would think that that's pretty important. Well, in Romans 12, he basically completes his thoughts on that in two verses. <laughs> you might say, well, to discuss the right estimate of oneself and others, that's a good subject to cover, Paul, the need to encourage others. Well, he takes about, we saw six verses to talk about that. He takes 13 verses talking about how we should love one another as the body of Christ. Then he delved into the idea of how does the church relate to the state, the government. He talks about that for seven verses. And then he talks about our conduct in light of the imminent return of Christ. And he uses another seven verses to talk about that. 
Well, here he goes on for a chapter and a half talking about how we as believers should treat one another and how we should get along with one another. It's a total of 35, 36 verses that he uses to discuss this. So it must be important for us to hear this because Paul taught on it for such a long period of time here in Rome. He wrote on it under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. Now, this is at the end of the book. Pretty much after this, you have some greetings and you have some closing comments and he says goodbye to some people, hello to some people, and and then he signs off. So this is something that he, he kind of saved to the end here under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit to kind of be pressing in our mind. You know, a lot of times when you talk with people, when you walk away from that conversation, what do you remember? You remember the last couple sentences. You remember what you just talked about. You don't remember maybe the hour before what you were talking about. And so he addresses here this subject of unity in diversity. Now, there's two main parts here. First of all, verses 1 through 12 of Romans 14. And we see here that he talks about how we as believers, how people should uh, be treated. Those who are maybe weaker. Those who have tender consciences. And then in verses 13 of chapter 14, all the way to chapter 15, verse 13, he talks about how those who are strong are to use their liberty in the faith. And so this is written pretty much to the strong believers. So if you think you're a strong Christian, both of these parts are for you. Now, the reason he spends so much time on here is because there's nothing more important to God than the unity of his church. The unity of his church. If you stop and think about it, you look through the New Testament, we're over and over and over through the epistles and in the Gospels even. In the Gospels, Jesus talks about, boy, if there's a brother caught in sin, then we need to deal with that. You don't just overlook it. You know, you go and you address that sin with that brother or that sister. And then if they don't listen, what happens? You take somebody else with you. And then if they don't listen, you tell it to the church. And eventually, if they don't correct their behavior, you put them out of the church in hopes that they will repent. See, this is foreign to a lot of churches today. A lot of churches tolerate all sorts of wrong behavior, wrong sinful practices within the confines of the church. And they say, well, we're not the, you know, we're not the church police. Well, maybe they need to be. Because it's very important to Christ that we maintain the purity of his church. And the way to do that is, the greatest threat to that is sin, allowing sin within the doors of the church. Now, do we all sin? Of course we all sin. We're all imperfect human beings saved by God's grace. And the last time I checked, we we didn't have our glorified bodies yet. So we are prone to sin. Even though that sin is forgiven, even though God has covered that sin with the blood of his son, the Lord Jesus Christ, even Paul says in Romans that the things he wants to do, he doesn't do. And the things he hates, he ends up doing. Even someone as spiritual as the apostle Paul dealt with sin probably on a daily basis to some degree or another in his life. So we don't need to get on our high horse and act like some, you know, Christian big spiritual person like we never sin. Because if that's our mentality, we're calling God a liar. Because we all sin in a myriad of ways, probably daily, in if not deed, thought, or word. And so the Bible tells us that we need to address that within the church. But I think he also talks about another threat to the church, and that is not so much sin, but disunity. Disunity. In Psalm 133, David wrote this in Psalm 133, How good and pleasant is it when brothers 
live together in unity. And listen what he says. It's like precious oil poured over the head, running down the beard, running down on Aaron's beard, down upon the collar of his robes. It is as if the dew of Hermon, the mountain Hermon, were falling on Mount Zion. For there the Lord bestows his blessing, even life evermore. David thought it was very important that brothers dwell together, live together in unity. And that's very important within the confines of the church. Even Jesus in his high priestly prayer in John 17, he said, my prayer is not for them alone, talking about his disciples. He prayed not only for the unity of the disciples, but he prayed for us. He says, I pray also for those who will believe in me. Guess who that is? That's you and me. We hadn't believed in Christ when he was here on earth, but he gave a promise. He said, you know what? I'm going to be praying for those who come to Christ. I'm going to be praying for those who will believe in me through their message that all of them may be what? One. That's his prayer. See, the whole idea of the church being segmented and, and broken up is not really something that's biblical. I mean, about as broken up as we get here as we send kids to an area where maybe they could be taught some things that are in a way that they could understand them. But I, I don't think they did that in the New Testament, to be honest with you. They probably didn't have Sunday school and all that. They probably all just hung out all together. You had kids running around doing all kinds of things. In some foreign countries, it's that way. You preach in a foreign country sometimes. I mean, you got chickens running across. It's like, wow, what's going on? You know, and they don't care. It's just part of their life. They're just there to be taught the word of God. And, and they're able to put all that aside. I mean, here, if somebody coughs, you know, they're disturbing me. It's like, give me a break. We need to kind of move beyond that. Now, we don't want to be disruptive in services. I'm not saying that. But at the same time, we need to understand that Christ is praying that we will be one. And he says, Father, just as you and I are one and I am in you, may they also be in us so that the world may believe that you have sent me. See, the unity of the church is vital to the gospel. It's vital to the effectiveness of the gospel. If the unity of the church is not there, you can go out and preach all you want. You know what? People are going to look at you. They're going to look at you and go, yeah, you go to that church over there, that hypocritical church. They're fighting over the color of the carpet. They're not going to believe your message about Christ. Or even within the bigger body of Christ. We need to understand that, you know what? We're all in Christ. Just because we don't go to a church that's called Grace Bible Church, it doesn't mean that, you know, we don't have any unity with those people. Yeah, they may believe different things. As long as they're non-essential things. And we're going to talk about some of those a little later. But see, the unity of the church is very important to Christ. And the effectiveness and propagation of the gospel of Christ is bound up, for better or for worse, with the degree of unity that we display to the world. So our Christian unity is of utmost importance. Um, And at the same time, and this is what makes it difficult, you know, we're not called to be clones of each other. We're called to be diverse We all have, if you just look around the room, we have different personalities. We come from different backgrounds. We look different. We come from different heritages. Probably if I asked you what you did over Thanksgiving, I'd probably get a bunch of different answers. Why? Because not everybody eats turkey. You know, other people eat different stuff. And that's okay. You know, and that's where we have to understand that, you know, this unity in diversity is very, very important. And if you don't understand the unity first, the diversity is going to drive you nuts. We're not here to make everybody 
like everybody else. We're here to call you to be like Christ. We want to be like Christ. And so in our temperaments, in our different ways, our personalities, all that stuff. And that's what makes unity so difficult, doesn't it? I mean, let's just be honest. Sometimes we click with people, sometimes we don't. You know what? That's okay. We don't have to, you know, put our arms around everybody and hang out 24-7. That's not what unity is. Unity is acknowledging who you are in Christ, that you're part of the same body of Christ as somebody else. Okay, maybe they do things a little different. Maybe when they worship, they raise their hands. So what? You know, I've been in services, very charismatic services, and I felt kind of pressured to do what they're doing around me. And I thought, you know what? That's just not me. I, I'm just not expressive that way. I mean, about as far as I've ever gotten worship is something like this. <laughs> I don't know why. It's just not within my ability to, you know, ah, and I just not that, not that kind of person. But if you are, that's Okay. You know, we have to have order within the body of Christ. We don't want somebody over here in the corner dancing and everybody's watching them dance when they should be worshiping the Lord. But at the same time, you know, we're called to worship Christ with a pure heart. And if you're doing that with a pure heart and a pure motive, you know, we need to recognize that people do that in different ways. And so we have this unity that we're called to, but we also have this diversity. Paul explains this beautifully in 1 Corinthians chapter 12. 1 Corinthians 12, verses 17, he says, If the whole body were an eye, where would the sense of hearing be? And if the whole body were an ear, where would the sense of smell be? But if, in fact, God has arranged the parts, of, parts in the body, every one of them, Do you hear the exactness of Paul's words? But in fact, God has arranged. God has arranged it. And he arranged the parts in the body, every one of them, just as he wanted them to be. I mean, isn't that a wonderful truth? That it's not up for us, you know, to start rearranging the deck chairs when God says, I got everything the way I want it. You just serve me where I've called you to do it, and you let the rest up to me. And so you have this unity and diversity. We're called to coexist in the body of Christ despite our differences. Now, when you speak of diversity, usually you don't think of unity because a lot of times as human beings, if someone doesn't conform to our standards, um, basically... You know, we don't, we have a problem with that. Our humanity won't allow us just to kind of relax and say, oh, well, you know, now there's some people that are that way. But if we're honest within ourselves, we have part of our being that says, you know what, I want to conform you to the way I am. I want you to do things the way I do them. Even if the end is the, the same, some people, you know, I, I tend to be this way a little bit, kind of control freaks. You know, it's like, wait, why are you doing it that way? You can do it this way. And it's like, I just need to learn to stop. Stop. Who really cares? You know, if the thing gets done, it doesn't really matter. But that's a truth that God is teaching me on a daily basis. Because our human tendency is to judge those who don't conform to our customs or our standards. And so the unity of Christ's church is often, you might say, imperiled by its own diversity. All you have to do is look through church history, right? I remember when I was a brand new youth pastor over at First Baptist Church in Fremont, and our pastor took us back to a pastor's conference back in Hammond, Indiana, First Baptist Church of Hammond, Indiana. Jack Hiles was the pastor. He wore these big black rimmed glasses. And I remember when we went into the auditorium, he had a big, like, looked like a piece of glass in front of his pulpit. I said, what's that for? Oh, that's that's bulletproof glass. I'm like, what kind of place is this, you know? I mean, this guy was just off the hook. And eventually, unfortunately, he failed morally. But it it was, there's just something weird about that place. Because... 
like all the students at Jack Hiles Anderson College, they all dressed the same. If they had glasses, they had black rim glasses just like them. It was weird. It was kind of freaky. And I'm thinking, man, I don't fit in here. And you could just tell in your spirit something's not right. You know, whenever you have an organization trying to make everybody like one individual, if that individual isn't Christ, run. Okay? Because that's what makes the body of Christ such an incredible experience that we're all different, and yet we all rally around one individual, that being Christ. Because he's the one that's changed our lives. Well, that's precisely the situation here in this cosmopolitan city of Rome in Paul's day. Christ's love had brought together a remarkably diverse group, a group of Jewish people who became Christians and a group of Gentile people who became Christians. And now they were both one in Christ. Now, if you know anything about Jewish and Gentiles issues, they don't really go together. Those two people just don't mix. It's like oil and water. But God says, no, there's not Jew nor Greek. There's what? One in Christ. And so when we stop and we think of the Roman church, their backgrounds had very little in common. You know, maybe some of you were raised in a religious home, a Christian home. Maybe some of you were raised, raised in a Catholic home. You know, we kind of have that common upbringing. You have that common background. Well, in this church, there was people who had very diverse backgrounds. You had people that were, were raised in the, 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 the heritage and all the, the, the traditions of Judaism. Then you had other people that were raised in total paganism. If they worshipped the God, it was the wrong God. But most of them didn't. You had spiritually bankrupt pagans of the Gentile background. And you know what? Um, it was just kind of no big deal. They came to Christ and they thought, wow, this is the greatest thing on earth. All my sins are forgiven. I found the true God. And yet, on the other hand, you had these, these Jewish people with all their traditional background. They came to Christ. And they began to say, hey, wait a minute. What's going on here? They had a hard time leaving their traditions behind. They had a hard time leaving the law behind, even now that they were in Christ. One commentator says, they were not like the heretical Judaizers in Galatia. You know, the book of Galatians talk about those people who, you know, worship certain days and do all that stuff. We're not talking about that here in Rome. Because they thought that they could put God under some kind of obligation by obeying the law. They thought that their relationship with God had to do with their obedience to the law. And the last time I checked, we're saved not by the law. We're saved by what? Grace. Through faith. It's not of works, the Bible says, lest any man should boast. See, these folks here in Rome, they knew that it was all about grace. Their newfound relationship with Christ was based on the grace of God. But even though they understood that, they couldn't entirely escape the thought that observing the law was pleasing to Christ. They still had part of their tradition and everything going along. And they, well, I still have to do this legal stuff. Because I know that, according to my tradition, that pleases God. And they felt that it was an res- appropriate response to God's grace that he lavished upon them. Now, their position's understandable, you might say, but it's not biblical. Because we're not under the law. So as a result of that, some of these people had actually become vegetarians. And we're going to, when we read the text here in a moment, you'll see what I'm talking about. Even though the Old Testament law did not command them to become vegetarians, the Christian Jews, the Jews who became Christians, came to the conclusion that, you know what, let's just eat vegetables. That's the safest way to make sure that everything's kosher. Just stay away from the meat. So they formed an anti-meat-eating, law-observing segment of the Church of Rome. Here's what we do. Well, the great majority in the church were still meat-eaters. 
They came from a pagan background. They came to Christ and they, hey, man, I'm, I'm still eating the steak. I don't care what you say. Bring on the pork chop. And so as Paul writes to Rome, you have these two parties that he actually gave labels to. He calls the law observing Jewish Christians those who are weak. They're weak. And he calls the liberated Gentile Christians those who are strong. Now, this doesn't, don't let your mind go to right and wrong. A lot of times we think, oh, weak, they must be wrong. Strong, they must be right. No, that's not what Paul is addressing here. And so the tensions between these two groups became very intense at times. I mean, can you imagine having a potluck and having a group of people within your church that only eats meat or only eats vegetables? And then you have a potluck with a bunch of meat. I mean, it's very easy, you know, oh, we're going to sit over here. This is the vegetable table. You know, look at those people over there eating that meat. That's disgusting. And so you could see where this tension would grow. And the Gentile, they didn't really know because they didn't understand the Jewish tradition anyway. You know, so they got the pork chop in their hand. Hey, brother, what's up? And the, the poor Jewish Christians going, oh, my gosh, he's eating pork. Can't believe it. And he's walking away, and the Gentile brother's looking at him like, what's up with him? You know, what I do to offend you? And you can see where it just starts to grow. And the Gentile brother probably eventually thinks the Jewish brother is angry at him, gets offended, and it just goes back and forth. How dare you judge me? I can eat meat if I want to eat meat. And so they may have taken the easier route and said, you know what, we're just going to start two more churches. This is going to be the vegetarian first church of the vegetables, and this is going to be the first church of the meat eaters. Let's just solve it that way. And we kind of laugh at that thinking, well, who would do that? But a lot of times that's exactly what happens in churches. People within a church may disagree with something, whatever. And rather to do what Paul is calling us to do, work it out, actually converse with each other and and have some grace on each side and, and deal with the issue, some people choose not to do that. So what do they do? They run. They run to a church that agrees with them. Unusually, remember, we're talking non-essential items here. We're talking, you know, not is Jesus God. We're talking things like the length of a guy's hair or the length of a woman's skirt. Churches actually divide over things like this. So in the first several verses here of Romans 14, I just want to read our text for us. And you'll, with that as a background, you'll understand what I'm talking about once you begin to read these, these scriptures on the pages of your Bible. Look at Romans chapter 14, beginning in verse 1. As for the one who is weak in faith, welcome him, but not to quarrel over opinions. One person believes he may eat anything, while the weak person eats only vegetables. Let not the one who eats despise the one who abstains. And let not the one who abstains pass judgment on the one who eats. For God has welcomed him. Who are you to pass judgment on the servant of another? It is before his own master that he stands or falls, and he will be upheld, for the Lord is able to make him stand. One person esteems one day as better than another while another esteems all days alike. Each one should be fully convinced in his own mind. The one who observes the day, observe it in honor of the Lord. The one who eats, eats in honor of the Lord, since he gives thanks to God, while the one who abstains, abstains in honor of the Lord and give thanks to God. For none of us lives to himself, And none of us dies to himself. 
For if we live, we live to the Lord. And if we die, we die to the Lord. So then, whether we live or whether we die, we are the Lord's. For to this end, Christ died and lived again, that he might be Lord both of the dead and of the living. Verse 10, why do you pass judgment on your brother? Or you, why do you despise your brother? For we will all stand before the judgment seat of God, for it is written, As I live, says the Lord, every knee shall bow to me, and every tongue shall confess to God. So then each of us will give account of himself to God. Therefore, let us not pass judgment on one another any longer, but rather decide never to put a stumbling block or hindrance in the way of a brother. I know, and I'm persuaded in the Lord Jesus that nothing is unclean in itself, but it is unclean for anyone who thinks it is unclean. For if your brother is grieved by what you eat, you are no longer walking in love. But what you, by what you eat, do not destroy the one for whom Christ died. So do not let what you regard as good be spoken of as evil. For the kingdom of God is not a matter, matter of eating and drinking, but of righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. Whoever thus serves Christ is acceptable to God and approved by men. For then... Let us pursue what makes for peace and for mutual upbuilding. Do not, for the sake of food, destroy the work of God. Everything is indeed clean. But if it is wrong for anyone to make another stumble by what he eats, it is good not But it is wrong for anyone to make another stumble by what he eats. Verse 21, it is good not to eat meat or drink wine or do anything that causes your brother to stumble. The faith that you have, keep between yourself and God. Blessed is the one who has no reason to pass judgment on himself for what he approves. But whoever has doubts is condemned if he eats. Because the eating is not from faith. For whatever does not proceed from faith is sin. We are strong. We who are strong have the obligation to bear with the failings of the weak and not to please ourselves. Let each of us please his neighbor for his good, to build him up. For Christ did not please himself, but as it is written, the reproaches of those who approached you fell on me. For whatever was written in former days was written for our instruction that through endurance and through the encouragement of scriptures we might have hope. May the God of endurance and encouragement grant you to live in such harmony with one another in accord with Christ Jesus that together you may with one voice glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, welcome one another as Christ has welcomed you for the glory of God. For I tell you that Christ became a servant to the the circumcised to show God's truthfulness in order to confirm the promises given to the patriarchs and in order that the Gentiles might glorify God for his mercy. As it is written, therefore I will praise you among the Gentiles and sing to your name. And again it is said, rejoice, O Gentiles, with his people. And again, praise the Lord, all you Gentiles, and let all the peoples extol him. And again, Isaiah says, the root of Jesse will come, even if even he who arises to rule the Gentiles in him will the Gentiles hope. May the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing so that by the power of the Holy Spirit you may abound in hope. You can see where Paul is addressing these issues because it was something that needed to be addressed. These people were having major issues of unity within their church. Sometimes those things can be kind of silly. We argue over over silly things. Here they're talking about eating. And by the way, this is not a a treatise on, you know, commanding you to be a vegetarian. 
I mean, those of you who are vegetarian, hey, that's great. If you do it for your diet, wonderful. But don't think it's some spiritual, you know, credit to your account. Um, I like the verse there, verse 2 of chapter 14. The one who believes that he may eat anything while the weak person eats only vegetables. I'd be weak too if I only ate vegetables, I'll tell you. I want some meat. Okay, I'm a carnivore. I just like meat. So, you know, if you don't like meat, that's okay. I'm not judging you, but don't judge me because I like a good steak or a good pork chop or whatever. So we need to be gracious with each other. And what happens so many times is, we hear this in Bible study, we hear this in conversations all the time, these words become very dangerous. Well, in my opinion, you ever hear people say that? Well, what do you think this is? Well, in my opinion, and I always want to say, I don't care about your opinion. Your opinion means like zero to me, just like my opinion needs zero. What is the text trying to teach us? What is the text saying? See, that's what true Bible study does. You don't just sit around a a circle with a bunch of people, read a verse and say, what's that mean to you? Well, that means this. Okay, next. Well, that means that and next. That means that. Okay, let's go to the next verse. I want to shout and go, wait, what does the verse mean? Somebody please tell me what the verse means. Because I don't really care what your opinion is. And those are very dangerous. It's a dangerous disease within any church. When you have people walking around, well, in my opinion. See, here, starting off here with point one, we need to learn to accept one weak in faith. This is what he starts off with in verse one. He says, as for the one who is weak in faith... What? Welcome him. Don't persecute him. Don't judge him. Don't be critical of him. And we can do that in a myriad of ways. I've heard Christians say, well, you know, once the brother matures a little bit, he'll get it. You know, just, and they kind of chuckle and go off. That's kind of a form of, of judgment. And by the way, the Bible calls us to judge. That's another misnomer. You know, you have people around the church. There's sin running throughout the church. Well, who am I to judge? You know, the Bible says somewhere, you know, don't judge lest you be judged. Well, the Bible also says, Jesus tells us over and over to make certain judgments about things. He says, be careful of of sheep and wolves' clothing. Stop and think about it. How are you going to know that a wolf is dressed in sheep's clothing, okay, if you don't make a judgment call. You're going to have to make a judgment call. How are you going to be able to discern truth from error if you don't judge what someone's saying in accord with the Word of God? See, that's the problem with churches across the board today. Nobody wants to make any judgment calls on what anybody's teaching or saying. And see, here we're called to make that judgment. There are those who are weak in faith. And what Paul is saying is you need to welcome him. It's a call to unity. It's really a kind of a summary of the whole chapter, what we just read. How is this person who's weak in faith, the person who's easily offended, the person who can't eat certain things, whatever, based on their religious background, whatever it might be, How are they to be treated? And it's not just food. I've talked to musicians sometimes who are are musicians, and they're very gifted musicians. And I find out, you know, they play a musical instrument. I was like, wow, could you have? Well, I don't do that anymore. That was in my former life. You know, I used to party and do all. I don't play anything anymore. And I thought, wow. You know, they just can't break away from that, that past, and so for me, I kind of judge them. It's like, right, get over it, man. You've got a great gift. Use it for the Lord. You know, but you know what? That's a form of judgment as well. Here it says, welcome him. Don't prejudge the person. How are they supposed to be treated? That's what he talks about in the first 12 verses here. These people who are weak in faith. Now notice, he says, the one who is weak in faith, welcome him or accept him. This is a compound verb. It's a compound verb, pros being the preposition here, and it intensifies what the basic verb means. And and what it's doing, it's making it a command. 
It doesn't say accept them if you feel like it. Paul's not saying that. He's saying, no, it's your duty. It's your obligation to accept this weaker brother in the faith. Paul wasn't just simply suggesting here. He was commanding us that as strong believers, we need to have a little grace and accept those who are weak in their faith. What's interesting, in the New Testament, this word that's used here, it's always used in the Greek middle voice, which gives it a meaning of of personal and willing acceptance of another person. It's used clearly in in Acts 28, too, where Paul uses the verb to describe the gracious hospitality of Malta, the natives there, who kindled a fire and received us all. So we're to accept those who are weak in faith. That word weak is kind of interesting because it's not something that is uh, an ongoing condition. You know, once we come to Christ, if we're new in our faith, you know, we may, be, we may not know everything about the Bible there is to know. You don't just wake up saved one day and you know everything. It doesn't work that way. It's a process. You've got to study. You've got to apply your mind to the Word of God. And so that word weak is a, it's a present participle, which means it's an ongoing thing, but it's, it's suggesting a, a temporary condition. So it doesn't give license to being weak. He's not saying, well, you know, it's good to be weak. No, you should understand more things about your faith and grow to someone who is strong in your faith. That's the process of sanctification. That's the process of Christian growth. And he also says here, except the one who is weak in faith. Um, For the one who is weak in faith, welcome him. That word faith there, in the ESV, it just says in faith. In some translations, it says in the faith. In the faith. Which is kind of an indication he's not really speaking of a spiritual trust or faithfulness, but someone who's understanding the full gospel. Someone who gets it. So you might... Say, as for one who is weak in the faith, accept him or welcome him. Um, That's what he told the Colossians to do in Colossians chapter 1, verse 23. He admonished them. He says, continue in the faith, firmly established and steadfast. And so here, also in in Romans uh, 15, 7, he uses the verb twice there, talking about Christians accepting one another. And then of Christ accepting us. See, that's how it works. I mean, the Bible says, who are you not to accept these people? When Christ accepts them. If they're your brother or sister in Christ, he's already accepted them. Who are you as just a believer to stand up and say, well, they don't do everything the way I do. Or they don't believe exactly the way I do. On non-essentials, you know, we're nobody. And it's the same thing with forgiveness, right? Christ calls us to forgive one another. As he has what? Forgiven us. See, we need to be reminded of what the Bible tells us to do. So this call to unity is for the strong to accept the weak. And this is the target of what Paul is talking about. He targets those who are weak in faith. Verse 2 tells us who he's talking about. He who eats vegetables only. He's not talking about a vegetarian here. For dietary reasons, you can't support being a vegan from the Bible. But to give you a little background on this, Old Testament Judaism had strict dietary laws. For whatever reason, they just were very strict. You can read about them in in Leviticus chapter 11, Deuteronomy 14. They were given certain animals that were clean. God told Moses certain animals were clean and some were not. God told him that certain animals you could eat, those with cloven hooves, which chewed the cud, such as cattle, goats, sheep, deer, fish with fins and scales, insects of the locust family. (laughs) They were clean. Remember, that's what 
Who was it? John the Baptist, right? He ate honey and locusts. And then you had the pig, the camel, birds that ate meat, carnivorous birds, sea creatures without fins or scales, most insects, any kind of rodents, reptiles. They were all classified as unclean. Now, in verse 2 of 14 here, he says, One person believes he may eat anything. Why? This is because God lifted those dietary laws of the Old Testament. Remember in Acts chapter 10, when Peter saw the vision? You know, these things are all clean. What God has cleansed, no longer consider unholy, he said. He had to say it three times to Peter, because Peter just couldn't comprehend it. It's like, wait a minute. No, that's not what we were taught. And he had to repeat himself over and over. Because it was such an enormous change from their tradition. See, God gave the Jews this specific dietary laws. It wasn't so much that they'd be more spiritual. It was to set them apart. It was to really designate them his chosen people. And you know what? Back then, I mean, they didn't have all the, the things that, that you know, we have today. But it was an enormous change. And it, it wasn't done for health considerations. It was done for the sake of the gospel. Now, when you stop and think about it, the gospel contains no dietary restrictions. You know that as a Christian, you are able to eat whatever you want to eat. But it's not just limited to food. You know, we're not just limited to, uh, you know, traditional things such as food. Because the gospel not only contains no dietary restrictions, it also contains no rituals, no ceremonies. Nothing that you have to do to come to God. The gospel doesn't contain any of that. All the rituals, all the candles, the vestments, the rituals, processions, all that that you see in religions like Judaism and even Roman Catholicism, other religions, they're not from God. You're not going to see that in the Bible. Take this little thing and burn incense and shake it. And, you know, where does it tell us to do that in the Bible? Okay. Where does it tell us to do, to, to wear a robe or to, to call someone father or a priest? You know, these are all traditional beliefs of a certain religious organization. So one person got it. He ate everything without any spiritual guilt. But the weak in faith didn't. They looked at that and thought, wow, how, how's that guy eating that pork chop? That's disgusting. There were new Jewish believers who maybe didn't read Acts 10. Remember, they didn't have the completed word of God at this time. They didn't realize that Jesus fulfilled all the Old Testament law, maybe in their newfound faith. And so when you stop and think about it, those weak in faith were new believers they had this rigid set of rules. Think back when you first became a Christian. Maybe you came out of a drug background or whatever kind of background. And you saw a Christian doing something that you used to do. Wow, how could they do that? They must not be a Christian. They're smoking a cigarette. They can't be a Christian. Wow, they took a drink of a beer. They can't be a Christian. You know, I saw Brother Jones come out of a movie theater the other day. I know he's not a Christian. We think of these things, and, it's, it, and the Bible doesn't really tell us about this. Now it says, hey, we need to put good things in our mind, that we shouldn't be on, become alcoholics or become drunk, okay, become under the influence of drugs or alcohol. I get that. But, I mean, some Christians think they should never patronize a commercial theater, and if you do... You must not be part of the body of Christ. There are some believers that believe that you shouldn't wear, women should not wear any cosmetics at all. No makeup, ladies. And there are groups within Christendom that they have their little group and that's what they believe. I like what, I think it was J. Vernon McGee said it. 
You know, if you need it, ladies, pack it on. (laughs) Even things like alcohol, it's a major issue among American Christians today. And coming from an alcoholic family, I get it. Okay, I understand it. I mean, generally, growing up, if I drank alcohol, I drank to get drunk. That's what I would do. Didn't do it a lot, but when I did it, that's what I did. I didn't enjoy it. It tasted horrible. So the quicker I'd get drunk, the less I'd taste it. It's just kind of stupid. And then you could act like an idiot and, you know, nobody hold you accountable. But that doesn't mean that, you know, any, any alcohol at all. Now, the alcohol we have today was not the kind of alcohol they have in the New Testament. That's for sure. A lot of people today say, oh, well, they drank wine in the New Testament. Well, yeah. But trust me, if it was the kind of wine that we see people drinking today... With that kind of alcohol content, Jesus and the disciples, they'd always be looped. They'd be drunk. It's a, it, was, it was diluted with water back then because the water wasn't a lot of times sanitary. So they drink, drank wine as a kind of help for just to get liquids in their body. Or things like tobacco. You know, you see a lot of times the Mason-Dixon line kind of is the dividing line for the use or non-use of tobacco among evangelical Christians. I'm not saying that's a good thing to smoke or to chew tobacco. It's not good for your body. And the body is the temple of the Holy Spirit. But just because you see someone smoking a cigarette or chewing a thing of tobacco, it doesn't mean that they're not a believer if they're claiming to be. Maybe they just haven't dealt with that issue yet. Or playing cards. I mean, you may laugh, but there's some people that have a real problem with playing cards. Or even Monopoly. They look at it as gambling. It's just kind of crazy. For some, the real litmus test, and this would be mine, is dancing. Because I don't like to dance. <laughs> so if you dance, you're not, no. Just kidding. But, you know, I mean, there's nothing wrong with ballroom dancing with your wife or whatever. I mean, there's nothing wrong with that at all. Now, some of the things they call dancing today, these gyrations that are sexually oriented, that's probably not healthy. I mean, I would definitely stay away from that. And even the world of fashion. You know, when you think of fashion, a lot of Christians look at that and go, oh, that's, that's, that's worldliness. Well, to a certain degree, it is. You know, and the Bible speaks about fashion. The Bible speaks about the way a, a, man, a man or a woman should dress. It keys in on women, and it basically says, you know what? You shouldn't dress in a way that constantly draws attention to yourself. That's not the purpose of putting on clothes. There's nothing wrong with getting dressed up and looking nice. That's okay. And so it it speaks to that, that it should be modest. Or another area within Christendom is Bible translations. Believe it or not, I mean, Christians go to bat with, with, you know, batting each other over what Bible translation is the correct one. You have whole denominations founded on that. Or sports. Say you're going home to watch the ball game. Oh, never watch that. I go home and read my Bible. Or music. Sometimes music is a, is a very heated controversy uh, regarding appropriate music. You know, it's funny. I mean, I was raised on music like um, Chicago and Bread and different groups that, uh, you know, sticks. And, and sometimes, you know, I go back and I listen to some of the, the songs as a Christian. And I'm thinking, wow, this was a Christian song and I didn't even know it because I'm applying it through my Christian lens now. And there's some songs that Chicago put out. They're just amazing, you know, but I'm looking at it from a different perspective now. And we have to be cautious what we put in our mind or also material wealth. You know, a lot of people think, well, you shouldn't have a nice car. You know, you shouldn't be able to go on vacation. You shouldn't do all that. That's ungodly. Well, that's not true. You know, God has entrusted with us things here of the material world. As long as those things don't have us, just having those things is not right, is is not wrong. So let me close with this. Christians are to be better than that. And, And some of the enemies of unity within the church here is, first of all, lack of the Holy Spirit. What do I mean by that? Well, there's, there's a lack of genuine faith. 
So you have people within the church who are not Christians and they're learning Christianese and they're going along with all this stuff and yet they don't have the the Holy Spirit to really give them an understanding of what it means to be unified in diversity. Or another thing is pride. You know, we get offended. Someone judges us or someone speaks ill of us and so we get offended and we take up that offense. Well, that's not healthy to the unity of the body of Christ. What should we do? We should practice grace. I mean, even if you say, okay, yeah, the guy said an idiotic thing and it offended me, whatever, I'm just going to give him grace and move on. That's between him and God. But our pride says, no, I'm going to make this right, and we want to get in their face over it. Now, if it's bothering you that much, I would say, hey, make an appointment and talk with the person. Sit down and have a good conversation with them over it. Usually, it's just misunderstanding. Or the third thing here, lack of doctrinal discernment. See, many people want unity for unity's sake. They think if everybody just holds hands and sings kumbaya and forget all the theology and all the things that that cause division, then everything's going to be just fine. But it won't be. You have to have doctrinal discernment. You know, I, I remember hearing of when Promise Keepers was a big thing. Um, there was a guy praying for unity. And in the article it says he called down fire from heaven to bring unity. It's the only way the world will be one. I don't know where he's getting this stuff, but that, that's just not true. You know, there's a lot of people who join churches that display unity. We affirm everybody. We accept everybody. Well, that's not necessarily a good thing. Um, there's, a lot of, there's a lot of people within the church that are unwilling to take a stand on doctrinal issues because when you do that, what happens? It causes what they think disunity. And it really doesn't. It's just drawing a line in the sand. So if you're unwilling to speak up against some of the errant teachers in the Word of Faith movement or some of the errant doctrines in the Roman Catholic faith, for example, then you've got to stop and say, well, if you're unwilling to do that, you're really giving approval to that. And if what they're teaching flies in the face of what the gospel we find in the Bible, then we have to be honest and open and in love confront those things. And so we're called to accept the one who is weak in faith. We're called to unity. The target of this unity is really those who are weak in faith. And it's really addressing us as stronger believers to say, you know what? Don't be so judgmental of someone that, you know what, you, you don't even take the time to get to know them before making a judgment call. Uh, Ironside told a story of a bishop from New York City who was traveling in a boat. I think it was a boat or a rail car somewhere. And he got to his birthing area, and there was another person in the birthing area. And he looked at the person, and he just thought, uh, okay, so he grabbed all his valuables and he went down to the purser of the, the ship and he said, hey, I hate to do this to you, but can you keep my valuables? Uh, you know, I, I just checked into my room and I have to share this room with somebody and he just doesn't look very trustworthy and I'd really appreciate you if you could just keep these in your safe for me. And the guy said, oh, no problem, uh, Bishop, so-and-so, you know, we'll keep those uh, safe for you. He goes, well, I don't want to be a bother. He goes, oh, you're not a bother at all. He goes, the man you're sleeping with has already been down here, and he gave me his valuables for the same reason. <laughs> See, sometimes we prejudge people, and we don't even have the right to do that. You know, there's nothing wrong with calling sin, sin. But we also have to realize that, you know what, at times we have to be a little more gracious and patient with people as the Lord is patient with us. Father, we thank you for these words of hope and faith today. We pray that you would just help us to not forget the importance of maintaining the unity that you provided for us here in the body of Christ. And Lord, it's up 
not to just one person. It's up to all of us. No matter what we do, how we serve here, to always look not to offend the other person. And when someone is maybe an offense to us, that we practice grace and, and overlook or maybe share some kind words that could maybe help that person grow in their faith. But let us help, help us not to be so quick to judge people, to prejudge people. Maybe they don't look the way we do. Maybe they don't dress the way we do. Maybe they don't talk the way we do. Maybe they don't enjoy the things that we enjoy. But if they're part of the body of Christ, we're called to be one with them. And that's a prayer that Jesus prayed for us. So I pray that you would give us the wisdom to know how to bring that to pass each and every day. And it's a moment-by-moment thing. It's not something that we just declare and it's over. It's an ongoing battle to maintain the unity within the diversity of the body of Christ. And Lord, we pray today that you would just speak your truth to each heart here. Father, only you know where each heart is in relationship to you. If there's any here who's yet to cry out to you, Lord, be merciful to me, a sinner. I pray that that would be their prayer this morning, that you would show them their need of a Savior and that they could turn from their sin and turn to the one who's provided forgiveness and life and grace to their soul. We thank you and we praise you in Jesus' name. Amen.